Good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you on this beautiful Lord's Day. Please have your Bibles open to Luke chapter 15. We're going to be there in just a moment. Luke chapter 15. Thank you so much for inviting me to come once again. Thank you to the shepherds. It truly is refreshing to my heart. When I think back about my time at Monta Vista, I gained more from you than you gained from me. I am positive of that. And that's true of every individual member, I suppose, because it's just one person contributing, whereas when you're part of a congregation that's 200 or so, you've got 199 others you know, that you can benefit from. So thank you so much. And your warm handshakes and your warm hugs, it just it means a lot to me, and it's so refreshing when I could be with you guys. Let's get the scripture out in front of us. I want to talk with you about the parable of the lost son, the prodigal son. And it's actually in a series of a few parables, which we'll, we will bring to light. But as I like to do, let's just read the parable and get it in front of us, and then we'll kind of walk through our lesson. This is going to be starting in verse 11, Luke chapter 15, verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of, of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. He was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. No one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise, go to my father, and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose, and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put, on the, the, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate, for my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. They began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he received him back safe and sound. Verse 28. But he was, hung, but he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he said to him, he said to his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. I'm going to try to combine a couple of lessons that I did recently. They were very short, 
So I'm going to try to take the best of what I thought those two lessons were about and present them in this, in this one. So just some review of what Luke 15 looks like uh, beginning up to this parable. It is a series of parables about lost things and how rejoicing is reasonable when those lost things are found. If you back up in chapter 15 and look at verse 4, you can see the parable about the hundred sheep, the one lost sheep and the shepherd leaving the 99 behind to go search for that lost sheep. And after that parable, he says in verse 7, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And then he begins in another parable about a woman who had 10 coins, and 10% of her coinage got lost. 10% of her possessions got lost, and she begins to search diligently for that. And then at the end of that parable in verse 10, Luke 15, verse 10, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Just think about how those parables ended for a moment. I view heaven as a very joyous place, don't you? So when there's extra joy in an already joyous place, I wonder what that looks like. Extra joy in an already joyous place, and it happens over people who repent. There's more joy over that at the end of the first parable than 99 people, than a church full of people that don't need any repentance. And then the second point about how valuable it is the more intense the search becomes. I don't know about you, but I lose things all the time. You can ask my wife, I cannot ever find my keys. I cannot find my wallet sometimes. And she always coaches me and tells me, just put it in the same place all the time. And I can't remember to do that. But every time I'm trying to get out to work and I, I, I'm looking for my keys, I'm looking for my wallet or whatever, I've ended up bribing my children. I will give you $20 if you can find my wallet. Please, somebody help me. And the family, the family gets it. If it's something that's valuable, if it's something that's needed, the more intense the search is. You can see that picture on the right of that shepherd. We don't know what the picture looks like or what the story looks like or how he told it exactly. Maybe there was a few more details involved. But look at that shepherd hanging on to a cliff, wanting to get that sinner who needs to come home. The intensity of the search and the intensity, the intensity gets ramped up in the three parables. So you have one of a hundred, and then in the second parable you have one of what? One of ten. And then in the third parable you have one of two. And on top of one of two, it's children. It's not money. It's not possessions. It's not your livelihood like the sheep would have been. So you see the intensity getting ratcheted up before he begins talking about this prodigal son. And I just want to say, this could be probably a, a whole lesson in and of itself. But perhaps we would search for souls more if we valued them like God valued them. 
And the father let him go. I don't know about you, but those of you who are parents, maybe you can appreciate this. I am not what they call a helicopter parent. And so my kids get hurt a lot because I'm not helicoptering over them to, to prevent them from getting hurt. In fact, I kind of like them getting hurt. Vera hates this about me, but she's learning to deal with it. But if the kids run in and they're just yelling and screaming bloody murder, ah, I fell. If there's not bone sticking out of the skin, I'm good. <laughs> Give them a hug, get them back outside. The more cuts, the more bruises. I think that's good for them because it teaches them something. It teaches them to persevere, teaches them to be tough. All of those things. But you know, we might giggle about that when it comes to cuts and bruises. But sometimes I think a little tough love is what people need in the spiritual realm. Meaning, they need life to slap them around a little bit. And we can't be helicopter parents when it comes to spiritual guidance. We can't keep people from sinning. We can't keep people from wanting to sin. We can't keep people from wanting to be worldly. But what we can do is every now and then, you maybe take the approach that this father took, which is, you want to go? Then go. And God's providence, praise God for it, through His loving providence, life has a way, and I told this to a person recently struggling with sin, verbatim. I said, life has a way of slapping us around a little bit. And when it does, I hope you'll come home. He let him go. How do you view a life of sin? You know, when this younger son demands his inheritance and then heads off, did you notice what the text says? that he headed off on a journey. I don't know if all of the translations say that, but the English standard does. He's headed off, he's headed out with his inheritance, and he views it as a journey. And it just made me wonder, as I was putting this together a few months ago, about how we view sin. Do we view it as self-destruction? So you got the picture on the left of the guy standing on the limb there, and he's cutting off the limb that he's standing on. He's about to hurt himself. And if you do a Greek word study on the word in verse 13, reckless, the Greek word that's translated into the English reckless there, it means to live in such a way so as to destroy yourself. That's what sin does. Sin is self-destruction. But if you had asked that younger son, hey, where are you going with all your stuff and all your money? Where are you going? You know what he would have said? He would have not told you, oh, I'm headed for self-destruction. See you later. He would have said, I'm headed on a journey, which to me indicates something that's fun, something that's exhilarating, something that's exciting. It's a journey, right? It's adventurous. And it even, to my mind, means something temporary. Those of you who have lived long enough, and maybe spent months or years in sin. Did you ever think when you were living in the sin that you were committing, did you ever think to yourself, I'll be back? 
I remember thinking that very thing. My college days, Marine Corps days, I remember living wickedly. And, and if you had asked me during those moments, Alan, do you want to live like that forever? I would have told you, no. I wanted to be like my parents. I wanted to be like the spiritual giants that I knew. I wanted to find a good, godly woman that I could marry and raise a good, godly family. That's what I wanted in my core. But I thought, you know, after I'm done with this, I'll get serious. And if you've ever had that thought, young people, please listen to me closely. Take it from someone who has the experience. Sin's a lot harder to leave than you think. Sin has a way of getting its claws in on you, and you can't unsee certain things. You can't unhear certain things. You can't unexperience certain things. And even after you do leave, there's collateral damage. There's scars. To this day, I will hear certain things on the radio, I will hear certain things on TV, I will see certain things on TV, and it will bring my mind back to where it shouldn't be. You know what those are, kids? Those are scars. Those are spiritual scars. So if you think to yourself that sin is just fun and exhilarating, and I'm just going to mess around with it, but afterward I'll get serious. Kind of like going out on a journey. Please hear me. It's a lot harder to leave than you think. He came to himself. Look at verse 17. But when he came to himself, if you like word studies and you like Greek word studies, do one on this phrase. It actually is very similar to a phrase that we heard in our first lesson from Andy in the book of Daniel. Twice the phrase comes up in Daniel chapter 4 where Nebuchadnezzar says that his reason returned to him. That's the way the English standard words it in Daniel 4. And if you look at the Greek Septuagint, the translation of, from Hebrew into Greek, it has similarities to this phrase. He came to himself. And if you do that study, you'll also find out that this phrase is used of people waking up from a dream, snapping out of a vision, something that wasn't reality. It wasn't, I mean, it was going on in their mind. God was giving them this dream. God was giving them this vision. I'm not saying that he didn't, but it wasn't happening in the real physical world, the carnal world that we live in. And that's the way sin is. Sin is, is, is like this dream world. It's actually not reality. And to stay in it is true insanity. I want to read these passages that are on the board. You don't have to turn there, but just listen to them. Jot them down if you want to read them in your own time. But listen to how Paul talks about how deceiving, how much of a lie the life of sin is. Romans 7 verse 11. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. 
So sin, he, he's in a context there in Romans chapter 7 talking about, you know, if, if God gave the law and we realize that we're more sinners because of God's law, is God's law the problem? And he says, no, 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 no. Listen, it's because of sin. It's sin's fault. Sin took the opportunity through the commandment. So every time we read a commandment, Alan, don't lust. Sin takes its opportunity through that commandment and says, you know, lust is actually pretty fun. Honor your father and mother. You know, it's kind of fun not, not obeying mom and dad every now and then. Every single commandment we have, sin comes in and says, you don't need that. That's not the case. Does that sound like a story from Genesis to you? In the day that you eat of that tree, you will surely die. And Satan comes along and says, that's not the case. And not only that, but God is holding out on you. And then she looks at the fruit, which Jason believes is a tomato. And I can't argue with that. It, it, tomatoes look so good, and then they're just so bad. <laughs> Satan lies about what's going to happen with the tree. And then she's looking at it, looks beautiful, looks like it would be good to eat. We're looking at sin, and we think, it doesn't seem like I'm going to die doing that, and, and it does feel good going down. It's a lie. Ephesians 4, verse 22. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. The desire to sin, that is a lie. So in Romans chapter 7, and in this parable... The father speaks of the sinning and, and the far country life as, as death. And in Romans chapter 7, he talked about it, it deceiving him and through it killing him. So we've got to view sin as if it was going to kill us. But why would we ever, why would we ever want, have the desire for something that was going to kill us? And yet we do in our flesh. Why would we want something that was going to kill us? That very fact alone should tell us just how deceiving it is. And then listen to Hebrews 3 and 13. Exhort one another every day. This is the exhortation to the church, okay? So Monta Vista Church. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So it is not enough for sin to just lie to you and for you to believe that lie. That's not enough. Satan wants to go beyond that. Satan wants your heart to be hardened more and more and more. And have you ever met someone who is a, a part of a false religion, a part of a pagan religion, and they could not think of life any different than in that religion? They could not think of their life any different than believing and practicing what was going on in that. And you know what has happened over time? They've believed a lie, become hardened, believed more and more, and over time their heart just gets a little bit harder the longer they are in it. And the longer you're in it, the harder it is to get out. His lavish grace. So one of the reasons why I brought up the two preceding parables was to show you the intensity of the search. 
And I don't know about you, but just about every class I've ever been in or every sermon that I've ever heard about the parable of the prodigal son, when we get to this point about the father seeing him from a long way off, the class or the preacher, they get to talking about how the, the father must have been looking for the son. Have you heard classes like that, points like that in sermons? If he saw him from a long way off, he must have been looking. And you know, the text actually doesn't say that. But I have come to believe that that is exactly what's going on because it's in the context of the two preceding parables. Are you telling me that we're going to send out a search party for a sheep and we're going to send out a search party for a coin, but we're not going to send out a search party for a son? So yeah, there's got to be some searching going on. When he sees him far off, you can see in the picture, you know, he's got his hand kind of above his eyes, shielding the sun. If they had binoculars, you know, he'd be adjusting his binoculars. Is that, is that who I think it is? That's my son. That's my boy. And he breaks out in a run. They embrace. There's this kiss. But he had come to himself, and he had prepared a speech. What was his speech? I'm going to go home. I've come to myself. I've come to reality. I've come to see how, how sick this life is. I want to go home. But I know I can't go home like a son. So here's what I'm going to tell my father. I know that I'm not coming home as a son, but I'm going to come home as an employee, like standing at attention. Make me a hired servant, sir, at your service, sir. And this is what he tells his dad after they embrace. They have this conversation. Dad, I'm here to be employee. I know I brought reproach on the family. At your service, sir. And it's like the father didn't even hear what he said. Bring the ring. Bring the robe. Bring some shoes. Kill the fattened calf. And can't you hear the, the young boy... The young man saying something like, Dad, didn't you hear what I said? I know I can't come home as a son, and can't you hear the father saying to the son, didn't you hear what I said? Bring the rope. Bring the ring. Bring the shoes. Kill the fattened calf. And one of the biggest points I want you to take away from is this. As extravagant as we can be in sin, God's grace is even more extravagant. You cannot out-sin the grace of God. It doesn't matter how bad it is. It doesn't matter how disgusting it is. It doesn't matter the collateral damage and all the relationships you have burned. When you come home in repentance, you come home as a child because of what Christ did. You don't go from being a son to being a sinner and then to a slave. No, you go from son to sinner and you go right back to sonship. Because Christ covered it all. Now let's talk about the older son. Which is why I think he told all three of the parables to begin with. Because before the first parable, which begins in verse 4, if you just back up, look at the very first verse of the chapter. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. 
And the Pharisees and the scribes, they grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners. I wonder if people say that about us. I wonder if people say that about this church. That church receives sinners and eats with them. And I'm not talking about excusing sin. That's not the way Jesus received sinners. He received them, treating them with dignity and respect and love, appreciating their soul, appreciating the value of their soul, and then helping them get out of sin because that's what's destroying them. So that's the receiving that I'm talking about. But when the, when the older son finds out that they're celebrating in the house, he's such a stick in the mud. Did you notice? He didn't even go in the house to find out what was going on. He literally calls a servant to himself and then asks, Hey, what, what's going on? I hear dancing in there. I hear celebration. What's going on in dad's house? And the servant says, Your, son, your, your, your brother is back. And they've killed the fattened calf. Now, what should the response of the older son have been right then and there? What should the response have been? Same as the father's, right? My brother is back? All right. Hey, I see shoes. I see the ring. I see the robe. I see the celebration. You're back. Congratulations. I'm so glad you're part of this family again. But instead, he stays outside, and evidently there's some whispers going on because the dad hears of it. And doesn't that happen in the church? You know, when people aren't acting the way they're supposed to act, little whisperings, some phone calls, maybe some text messages and emails floating around. And the dad has got to go out to the son and reason with him and talk about how reasonable, literally just how reasonable it is because the dad views it as a resurrection. And can you imagine, just think of the last person in your life, the closest person in your life that you, that you lost to death. And if they were walking in from the foyer right now, how would you respond? You remember John Banks? He was a member here for many years. We grew to be, he grew to be one of my best buddies. Lost him at age 30 after he moved back to Texas. But can you imagine if John walked in right, right here, right now, resurrected body? I would not finish this lesson. I'll tell you that right now. And we would be in a line, we would be talking about it, we would be celebrating, I dare say we wouldn't even go to lunch. We would be so happy. And, and, and if you can appreciate what it means to, to celebrate over physical resurrection, then yes, we need to celebrate over repentance. Think about how cold it is for someone to repent and then us respond by... Congratulations. Great decision. Then we walk off. We don't talk to them. We need to be so happy about this. We are God's kingdom on earth. So if there's joy in heaven, and that's the kingdom of heaven that we're a part of, shouldn't we be mirroring 
that response of joy. And here's what I want to say in conclusion of the sermon. I want to say that if we don't respond like this when people repent, we very well could be driving them back into the world. Look at that point underneath the heading. If we won't receive sinners like Jesus, like this father, the world will be more than glad to receive them back. It is very possible for someone to repent, come home to God, and then leave the Lord all over again because the church is making them feel guilty. And I know that that's possible because Paul wrote about it in 2 Corinthians. Did you hear our, our scripture reading? Listen to this verse again. This is 2 Corinthians 2, verse 7. They had a brother who was living in sin, maybe the guy from 1 Corinthians 5 who had his father's wife. Okay, they've got a guy in the, in the member, membership of Corinth who's come back home from repentance, and this is what Paul says. You should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. It is possible for someone to be so embarrassed, so sad about what they did, and then they come home, the reception is a little cold, and they go right back into the world. Do you see the poem that's underneath our heading and our first point? So this guy Kipling wrote a poem about the prodigal son, and he takes some liberties, of course. But the poem is about how the younger son might have felt once he realized what the reaction of the older son was. Let me say that again. The context of the poem is about how the younger son would have, might have felt once he realized how the older son reacted. And this is a refrain from it. I was never refined, you see, and it weighs on my brother's mind, you see. But there's no reproach among swine, do you see, for being a bit of swine. The world doesn't make people feel guilty for being worldly. You, see, you understand what I'm saying? And I'm not talking about excusing sin. Don't walk out of here thinking that I am. I'm talking about treating people with love and respect and dignity and letting the past go when people repent and truly, truly celebrating. You know, if the son had met the older son, the younger son met the older son on his way back home, and he's got his practice speech, older brother, I'm no longer to be worthy to be called a son. I'm here to work. I'm here to be an employee. I'm going to ask Father to make me a hard servant. And the older brother responds by saying something like, you know, you're right. You can't come home as a son. And I, I doubt Dad will even let you back as an employee. If that had been the first response he heard, how likely would it be for that younger son to return? and stay put in his return. You see what I'm saying? You see how damaging it could be if we have a little older brother in us? And I'm not saying that the church responds in such a, a snide kind of way. Normally though, it just, in a, in a blah kind of way. 
Congratulations. And there isn't this joy that we see in heaven. Let's put away our Bibles and get ready to sing the song of invitation. <clears throat> Thank you so much for your good listening. I think it's appropriate during this invitation moment, you know, we normally talk about baptism and being baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you have that opportunity. We've got a baptistry right here behind me. And today can be the day of salvation where you put into Christ. I hope that you'll take that seriously. Um, we'll ask you to confess Christ before this audience, ask you if you've repented, and ask you if you're ready to make the commitment to a life in Jesus Christ. But I think it's appropriate to make a little extra plea here for any prodigals to come home. Doesn't mean that you have to. You can repent and you can pray right there in the pew that you're sitting in. That would be great and heaven would still rejoice. But if it's something that's fairly public, maybe you should. If you brought reproach on this church, I think you should. And let this church family surround you with celebration. Let us see you make these changes for our hearts. Be an encouragement for us. So come home where you belong. Let's stand and sing. I've wandered far away.